Thank you for worshiping God and giving your very best wherever you happen to be. That's the amazing thing about God. No matter where we're at, God hears us. He's listening. Um, he is glad that we're taking that time to worship him. So thank you again. For those of you uh, who joined us today, thank you. And I welcome you to those of you who are new. We're so grateful that you're here today. Um, if you'd like more information about the church, um, you can just email us at office at wccstl.org. Um, I'm glad that all of you are here with us today. Next Sunday is Easter Sunday, and I want to invite you to join with us. Even though we're going to be separated, doing it again online, we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus in a very special way, and I want you to be a part of it, celebrating alongside of us. So in life, uh, we encounter a lot of questions. Some are pretty frivolous, some are very significant, some a little difficult to answer, when your wife asks you, do these pants make me look fat? Or the officer walks up to your car and asks you, do you know how fast you were going? Or when some politician is trying to answer the question, so how long will we be dealing with the COVID-19 virus? Important, but pretty unanswerable. We're going to look today at a question that is answerable, but the implications of that answer are not only significant for, for today, but for all of eternity. In fact, the answer you give, the answer that you give, the answer that we talk about to this question, it really means that your eternity is in the balance. And you may say, well, that sounds a little crucial or a little uh, drastic, Doug. I mean, a question that can be that crucial? Well, this isn't a what do you want for dinner question. This is eternity is at stake. One of the things that's occurring because of what we're being forced to face right now is our own mortality. And as the numbers of those who die, which is tragic, continue to grow, more and more people are looking for hope, not just today, but hope for tomorrow. So this question that we're going to talk about today is one of those weighty questions. And so to move us towards Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we, we take a look at the cross of Jesus Christ. And we ask this question, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? The, the reason this question is so important is because only through the death of Jesus do we have hope. In other words, without the death of Jesus Christ, our world would be completely and totally hopeless. So I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 27. I have it open in my Bible right here, but maybe you're going to use your tablet or your phone. If your kids are with you, help them find Matthew 27. We'll look at several different pieces as we go through there. You can use the YouVersion app. In fact, there's a couple of tabs over here on the side. One says Bible. You can find Matthew 27 there as you're listening together with us. But Matthew um, is one of the four gospel writers. Uh, the word gospel is the good news. They write about the life of Jesus Christ from four different perspectives. And so we're going to take a look at Matthew's account of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so when we come to Matthew 27, Jesus has already been arrested. Now, he was arrested in the middle of the night because the religious leaders were cowards. They didn't want to face the crowd and the revolt of the crowd. So let's begin in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 27. You follow along. 
Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. And what's sad is how they, the chief priests and the elders of the people, the very men who should have known that this was the Messiah because of their understanding of God's word, were the very men who completely ignored everything and rejected everything. They were the ones instrumental in his death. And as we'll learn later, even Pilate, the governor, he saw that Jesus was innocent. He even worked to have Jesus released, at least up to a point. Now look with me beginning in verse 15. It says, Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barsabbas, Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of selfish interest that they, that they had handed Jesus over to them. He knew. He knew their motives. Part of the reason he knew their motives was he had the same kind of motives. He was interested in protecting himself, the desire to protect my influence or position or power at all costs, even if it meant the death of an innocent man. I think selfish interests are showing up at times during this particular season. And as believers and as Christians, one of the ways we demonstrate a real difference between us and those of the world is when we're willing to put the needs of other people ahead of ourselves. But if in this season, your self-interests are winning out over serving others like your neighbors, maybe it's time for you to do some evaluating. So when the crowds cried out to release Barabbas, what did Pilate ask them? Look beginning in verse 22. Pilate asked, what shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? And they all answered what? Crucify him. Why? Here's an indication that he knew Jesus was in us. What crime has he committed? But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. Yet even though Pilate knew Jesus was innocent, he caved into the crowd. Verse 26. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him and then a twisted, they twisted together a crown of thorns and they set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and they mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said, and they spit on him. And they took the staff and they struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe, put on his own clothes, and then they led him away to crucify him. I mean, the, the crucifixion of Jesus is such a horrible way to die. And as the story 
unfolds here in Matthew's account. They make Jesus carry his own cross, which would have been such a burden to himself until he was too weak from such a loss of blood. And so they make another man carry the cross. And when they finally reach the place of the skull where they're going to crucify him, they lay Jesus down on the cross. They take a huge hammer and those massive spikes and they nailed his hands to the side. They put his feet and they nailed his feet and then they lifted slowly him up onto the, into the hole and then the cross dropped with a thud between two thieves. And then what did the soldiers do? They sat down waiting for Jesus to die. They even gambled away the few possessions Jesus had. And then what happens? The religious leaders come by and they mock him. And they spit on him. I mean, this lasted for about six hours. He was crucified nine in the morning. He was on this torture device called a cross until about three in the afternoon. And then look in verse 47. Jesus cries out, and when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah, and immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with white vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out in a, again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. And the Son of God died. I mean, the death of Jesus is so brutal. What he went through was so awful, so horrible. I think this really came to my mind significantly several years ago when Mel Gibson released The Passion. Jim Cavizio, who played the role of Jesus Christ. I mean, there was parts, for me, it was just too difficult to watch, to see what Jesus went through as he hung on the cross, as he was beaten before the cross. I mean, if, you, if you've never seen that movie, you need to watch it. It's not a movie to watch with your children. But it puts in our minds what Jesus went through, the exhaustion physically, uh, the mental anguish of being abandoned by his friends, the false accusation, the beating, both by the, you know, the temple guards as well as by the soldiers, the carrying of the cross, the hammering in of the nails, you know, trying to get his breath as he's up on that cross, as he painfully lifts himself up while hanging there. It seems so unfair. It seems so horrible, so unnecessary. It leads a lot of people to ask the question, if God's really God, why can't he just wave his magic wand and just say, everybody is forgiven? So there's three very important words that describe the character or the nature of God that's very important into discussion. It is the words, God is holy, God is just, and God is love. Now the thing about the character and nature of God is that it is unchanging, and we're thankful for that. For example, we know that God is truth. 
That means that whatever God says, we can absolutely count on it being true and not false. So it's unchangeable. So we begin with this concept or the, the character of God that says God is holy. God is absolute perfection. There is nothing impure of God. God can't sin. It's impossible for God to sin. In fact, it is God's nature that defines the difference between right and wrong, good and bad, sinning and not sinning. God is holy. And that means nothing impure can ever be in God's presence. Nothing with sin at all can ever be in the presence of God. So why can't God just say, well, everybody's forgiven and wipe our sins away? It's the second word. Not only is God holy, but God is just. Because of God's character, he can't treat sin lightly as if it doesn't matter, if it is insignificant. His nature will not permit him to allow sin to go unpunished. The justice of God means sin must be punished which places you and I in a very difficult spot because we're sinners. But that leads us to the third word that describes the character nature of God. God is holy, God is just, and God is love. God's love is that he doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. God's love for you and all of humanity since the very beginning of time is that he doesn't want us to perish. That's the nature of God, his love for us. And so what's the answer? The answer is that God sent his perfect and holy son who lived a perfect life on this earth. And he had his perfect son pay the ransom price for sin by dying this horrible death on the cross, by the shedding of his own blood by taking all the sins of the world and placing them on this perfect, holy sacrifice. So when Jesus dies on the cross, he satisfied the justice of God that he needed to punish sin. And he demonstrated the love of God because he took the place of everyone. He paid the penalty for sin which means he is both just and he is the justifier. So the question, why can't God just, you know, give everybody a get out of jail free card? In other words, why can't just God say, okay, everybody's forgiven? So let's think about that for a moment. I mean, if you're really honest, do you really want everyone to get a free pass to heaven? I mean, I know that sounds judgmental, but aren't there a couple people in your life that you don't want to run into when you're up in heaven? I don't want to run into Hitler. I mean, there's a lot of people I don't want to run into. Um, what about Judas? Maybe you'd want to ask him, why would he betray Jesus Christ? Maybe you don't want your annoying next-door neighbor to bump into you in heaven. So we, we all would say, okay, somewhere there's got to be a cutoff line, right? Obviously, we would be above that line, right? The cutoff line would be below us, maybe somewhere between Hitler and Mother Teresa, right? But there's no place in Scripture where Jesus defines the minimum requirements necessary to get into heaven. Fact is, according to Scripture, the minimum requirements to get into heaven is perfection, which means Mother Teresa can't get in by her own good deeds. I can't. You can't. Why would the cutoff line be 
perfection. Because God's nature is just, right? He can't leave sin unpunished. Which means the just thing to do with imperfect humanity is to condemn us all to the choices that we've made. Because we've all made those choices to sin. Nobody forced us to do that. So God, who is also love, sent his perfect son who never sinned, which meant he could be that sacrifice to take your sins and mine on the cross. That's how much God loves us. Why can't God just say everybody's forgiven? Because of the justice of God that demands a payment for sin. He can't pretend that it doesn't exist. Another question people wrestle with is this, how could a loving God send someone to hell? A lot of people wrestle and struggle with this. How could God, if he's really loving, send somebody to hell? And the answer is, he doesn't. In fact, he provided the only way for anyone to get to heaven. And then he says, it's free. It's for everyone. See, the reality is, Jesus is the way to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way and truth and the life. No one goes to the Father but by me. Now, a lot of people struggle with that statement because they say, well, that sounds so arrogant for Jesus to say, I'm the only way to heaven. But when Jesus says, I am the way, it's not a statement of great arrogance. It's a statement of tremendous compassion and love. Because you see, you broke the relationship with God. I broke the relationship with God by my sin. And God says he's come back through Jesus Christ to restore that broken relationship. God says, I will lay down my life so that your relationship with my Father in heaven that was separated by your sin can be restored and you can experience life to the fullest with him now and forever because God paid the ransom price through Jesus Christ. And so the closer you examine the statement of Jesus, I am the way, the more it makes sense. You see, if Jesus' words are true, then that single statement has got to be one of the single most important statements in all time. That is the most important information you will ever get for now and for eternity. But Think about the flip side of that. If there is another way besides Jesus, what kind of a sick God would God be? That he would allow his son to die in such a horrible fashion when there are other options available to us. But they're not. But God in his holiness, justice, and love set it up so that everybody can get in because God doesn't want anyone to die apart from him. He wants everyone to turn to him. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him Absolutely anyone who puts their trust in him doesn't have to spiritually die, but can have everlasting life. Jesus didn't, God didn't send his son Jesus Christ to condemn us, to point out how bad we happen to be, make it harder for us to find the way out, but rather he sent his son to save us, to show us the way, to, to rescue us. That's why I so love the statement that Jesus made Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to what? 
to give his life as a ransom for many. So if the death of Jesus Christ provided the only way to heaven, and it's a free gift for you and I, one that we certainly can't earn, why are so many people striving to earn their way to get to heaven? I'm going to let Elliot take a moment and explain to you just the exhaustion that comes when we try to earn our way to heaven. If you're trying to stay fit while you're in quarantine, maybe trying to get a little exercise, chances are you have used or maybe thought about using a treadmill. Or maybe if you're just trying to torture your kids a little bit. And it's no wonder. They're simple to use. They provide a convenient method to get your steps in. And they're so easy to get your hands on. Just search on Craigslist and you will find a bunch of them right now. Sadly, though, so many of us see religion, it feels way too much like we're running on a treadmill. You're working really, really hard, but you're just not getting anywhere. And that's a really accurate picture of the way some people approach the Christian life, especially when you know the history of behind the treadmill. In England, in 1818, it's the Victorian era, you couldn't find a treadmill at a local gym or at a health club, much less in anybody's home. But you could find them in prisons. Treadmills, tread wheels, as they called them back then, were used as a tool of the justice system to punish prisoners, to keep them from just sitting idle, and to reform their deviant nature. Now, some of these tread wheels actually produced some good. They would grind grain, pump water, or even power mills. And that's where the name treadmill comes from. Others, though, were strictly punitive. Prisoners were forced to spend around six hours each day walking up an inclined plane, knowing that the hard work, the effort, the energy, the sweat was all for nothing. The only hope that any prisoner had was knowing that someday he would have paid his debt to society and be set free, if he survived long enough, that is. He couldn't even look back at the hard day's work, all those steps, and be satisfied that at least he had been productive or accomplished something. It wasn't until 80 years later that England banned those treadmills in the prisons as being excessively cruel. And I want you to remember this as you struggle with the sin in your life, the envy, the greed, the jealousy, the lust, the addiction, the anger, the idolatry, whatever it is for you, you can fill in the blank. Remember that Jesus has set you free and that your sentence is no longer to be chained to the treadmill of sin, failure, trying harder and harder and harder to overcome the struggles on your own. He has paid the debt. He has ransomed you and you are released you are freed from the hold that sin had over you. And because he has paid our debt, you and I get to walk in his freedom, his love, his mercy as beloved children of the Most High God. For some of you, my question is, why are you exhausting yourself? I mean, this is the reason that we truly need to understand the impact of the cross because it's only by receiving and accepting the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as payment for my sins, can I have hope at all? Listen to these scriptures, Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Notice this, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. God put all our sins on Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him, Jesus Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved, the name Jesus Christ. Do you know why Jesus had to die on the cross? Because he loved you. He loved me. He knew we were hopeless. He paid the price so you, so that I, so that the whole world could have in this life and in the life to come hope and forgiveness and peace of mind and a purpose in life. He loved you and I so much that he took his arms and he spread them out and he allowed them to nail his arms, his feet to that cross for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So I want to encourage you over the next few moments to take some time to do some reflecting. If you've got your family there, I want you to talk out loud about this together. If you're by yourself, you know, write, write a couple of things down. For those of you who have never accepted the sacrifice of Jesus, maybe you should say, here's why I haven't done it. Or here's what I need to have happen and be honest about that. Um, for those of you who have accepted the sacrifice of Jesus, maybe it's time to say, God, thank you for that sacrifice. I, I couldn't earn that. Maybe you can talk together about how difficult it is to have the right kind of motives in regard to living for God. That we want to please God, but then we wrestle with knowing I can't, you know, make God happy enough with me because of, you know, my own sin. Um, share what your salvation means to you. Talk about when you gave your life to Jesus Christ. So we're going to give you a couple of moments. There'll be a black screen with those questions up there with some music. And then when we come back, Emily's going to sing a song that will really meet the need that we have in our hearts about Jesus Christ. So let me pray for us, and let's do some reflecting together. God, I thank you for your great love and mercy, for your gift of salvation. Lord, I can't fathom what it must have been for Jesus to go through the agony, the torture of the cross. And yet, Lord, I say thank you. I want to live every day for you, out of gratitude for you, not because I'm trying to earn something to you, God. And for those who are there who need to say yes to you, Lord, draw them to you, convict them, encourage them, whatever they need to say yes to you this day. Father, thank you for the cross, for Jesus Christ, for salvation. In your name I pray, amen.